36 through 47. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ with Jesus whom you crucified. Now then, they heard this and they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and, they, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to breaking of bread and the prayers, and awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. And let's pray. Uh, God, first, I just thank you so much for allowing us to meet here today. Uh, Lord, I thank you so much for the word that you have given us in the Bible so that uh, we may go forward in all of our lives, and specifically this scripture that we're going to be going over today. God, my prayer is that the Grove Church would see uh, day by day uh, more being added to our number who are being saved. I pray over the sermon that's being given today. Um, I rebuke any attacks from the enemy. And God, I pray that the words that come out of Lance's mouth are not his, but yours. Um, and Lord, that you would just be with everybody here listening to the sermon, um, that you would just release any hard hearts or anything that might be holding us back from hearing what you have to tell us today. So Lord, give us eyes to see, ears to hear, minds to understand, and hearts to believe. Amen. Amen. I'm just a creepy guy standing behind you as you pray. It's fine. Uh, we are so grateful that they uh, not only uh, read and prayed, but also cast a beautiful vision for um, neighbor groups, discipleship, and all of the above. So uh, thank you, Whites, for, for doing all of that. Really appreciate it. Well, um, <clears throat> we are uh, embarking on a new season as a church and ultimately add in a new series. And so we are uh, ultimately going back into what the scriptures say about what this church is all about. Now, if you're coming to a partnership class, we'll do all that we're going to talk about in the next nine, out, nine weeks in like 45 minutes on that day. So this is a, a, a beautiful time for us as a church to expand on the things that really we're really compressed to do on any given Saturday in a partnership class. So um, we, are, we are embarking in uh, this new series called Daily devotions. Now, we've done series like this before. A couple of years ago, as a matter of fact, we called them family devotions. We changed this idea of devotions from values. Before that, we talked about our core values as a church. And you might be wondering, which you probably aren't, but I'll ask you to wonder, um, uh, like, why are we changing the language? Why did we change the language? And it's multifaceted. But let me tell you why this is an important series for our church 
in this time. If we've done this before, we used to do it every year, now it's about every other year. If we've done this before, if we do it in every partnership class, why are they, then we spending the next nine weeks on said topic? Well, here's some statistics for all y'all. Since 2019, there are 67% new partners, a part of the Grove Church. These are the people that have not just uh, said they like this place, they've gone to that partnership class, and then they followed that up with being baptized if they weren't baptized. And then they sat again over dinner with their neighborhood group, a leader and an elder, and they've, they've taken on the rhythms of this church. Um, that takes a lot of commitment and a lot of hardship to get to that point. We intentionally make that difficult uh, because it's important to know this is that kind of place. It's going to cost some things to be a part of this place. 67% though of the partners in our church, there's 209 of them, 105 adults, 104 kids. Yeah, that's how it's been from the get-go. Uh, 209 of us, that 67% of that number is new since 2019. Now, if you break that down and you expand it a little bit to say, okay, like, what about non-partners? What about the guests that are here just in the last two years? If you add everyone together, partners and guests, it is 64% a new church since the last time that we preached on what we devote ourselves to. So if you don't need this message, if you're a core member of this church, if you have started this church at Joy Lutheran Church long ago, and you go, man, I've heard all this before, it ain't for me, cool, glad you're here. Guarantee you, your neighbor needs to hear this. If you don't need to, which I would argue that you do, because we forget, then your neighbor certainly does. But here's also what I noticed. I had lunch with a pastor uh, this week, been in, the, been in the area for four decades or more, and I just noticed something that's happening in our area that's quite unique for our time. And he was quick to remind me, this isn't just our area, this is everywhere. American church is broken. But here's what I'm observing over the last three to four months. There's been infidelity in our area amongst pastoral leaderships. There's been church splits amongst churches in our area. Um, we're either, if we're not splitting or disqualifying ourselves, we're, we're running off pastors uh, at, a, at a really alarming rate. Like, I'm a, I'm a, we're a part of the San Felipe Baptist Association, like, locally, and we get emails. And so that's, like, that's, anyways, we get emails, and won't go into all that, but we get emails, and what was alarming at the end of it was new pastor needed First Baptist Richmond, new pastor needed First Baptist Rosenberg, new pastor needed First Baptist Katy. I mean, the only thing left is First Baptist Sugarland, and I don't even think that's, a, that's not even the name of the church, and they don't need a, they don't need a, a pastor right now. But everywhere around us, the church that was here first of a particular domination is, is, is struggling. They're hurting. There's something going on in this area that just with my spiritual eyes, I'm going, there's something funky in the water right now. And ultimately, we're hurting. And I think we're hurting because we've devoted ourselves to the wrong things. Political alignments, whether that's church politics or government politics, that may be one of the things we've misaligned ourselves to. False hope after false hope mean that we're going to start blaming one another in a way that is not representative of what we just read. And so ultimately, we need to be aligned to the scriptures more than anything else. And I think behind all of this, people are wondering if your church matters. People are wondering if this thing that we're doing on Sundays actually makes any difference at all. Matter of fact, that was what my thesis was all about and to get my master's degree, is that baptized believers in the last century of church in America don't live a life any different 
than non-baptized people. There's no difference. Why not? What's the difference? Why doesn't it matter? People are wondering if this is a church that will make a difference in their lives for the better. And so there's this critical curiosity that perhaps some of you have about us, to which I say, welcome in. Be critical, but be curious. Be curious about the different rhythms, the different language, or perhaps the ancient language that's intentionally being used. Because our hope, my hope, is that we want to build out and hopefully live out as closely as we can to what it looks like to be a Christian in this culture. And I think the key to figuring out what it looks like to live like a Christian in this culture is to go back to the first century when they lived out what it looked like to be a Christian in that culture because it's not all that different. It's not an irrelevant uh, text for an irrelevant time and said it is God's word relevant for every day and age. So we got to take our cues on how to be Christians in this age from the Christians that were first Christians in their age. I hope that when we read the Bible, when we come across passages like Acts 2.42, My hope is that when we read that Bible, our mind goes and can put names and faces to what it looks like to live devoted to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of uh, bread, to the prayers, and we've added in there, we think it's there, missional living. I I want you to, when you read the Bible, I want you to see people when you read the Bible. And when you come here and you live in neighborhood groups and do life together in growth groups, my hope is it reminds you of what you read in the Bible. That's our hope, is that this actually comes alive and it matters in our hearts. After COVID, we put together a vision team and that vision team was ultimately to go back to our values and go like, all right, let's re-ask some questions. Before, when we started this church in 2014, y'all, we're going to celebrate nine years together uh, in November, which is going to be a lot of fun. But in 2014, when we came together in living rooms only, we asked the question. This is the question we were being led into. And we asked, what would make our church look different and be different than 10,000 other churches? Not a bad question. It's a good question, but it's lacking. What would our church, what makes our church different than 10,000 other churches? It makes it comparative to other churches. Again, not bad, but really not sustainable for us. So we came back after COVID, we started to ask other questions. And that question was, I don't want to look different from other churches. I want to look the same as the church has looked for the last 2,000 years. So what would a church look like that devoted themselves to the things that are in the Bible. Well, first we've got to devote, right? But we would devote ourselves to the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, the prayers, the breaking of bread. And again, we would add in missional living. And so that's what we're going to go through over these nine weeks. You say there's only five topics. We know. We're going to expand on them a little bit more than what we have in the past. So today we're going to talk about being devoted to the fellowship. And you're going, but that's not what, what's first in Acts 2.42. It says, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. And I go, I know, we're doing this out of order on purpose. Not to frustrate you, but because for the last several weeks we've been telling you, neighborhood groups are launching, neighborhood groups are launching. And when do they launch? But next week. So for this week and next week, we're going to hopefully cast vision for you that this is a necessary rhythm for every Christian in every culture, to live and be devoted to fellowship. We firmly believe that Christian community is wholly distinct, different, and dare I say better, than what you can find anywhere else in the world. 
You will find community in your workplace. You will find community at the CrossFit box. You will find community at the ball fields. But it is not Christian community. It can be, but it's not distinctly Christian community, which is what uh, the Bible calls the fellowship. Christian community, the fellowship, is different. It's something different, and I would say, again, better, because it absolutely changed first century Rome. And i got to ask the question as we get going, is what you're devoted to changing the culture that you're in? Or does it just look a whole lot like the culture around us? Because the first century church flipped everything upside down in how they lived. It was the Christians with how they lived, with being hospitable, with being generous, with being kind, intervening in all all sorts of crises. It was the Christians that made all the atheists or the, uh, the polytheists of the days wonder, like, what is this community about? That over two or three hundred years, all of a sudden, you had Rome becoming a Christian nation. You, they went from persecuting Christians, beheading them, running them through with spears, burning them alive, to adopting this community as their national religion. What in the world? How did that happen? Well, we see it. Maybe we take... Uh, take it for granted, but it's right here. So if that's true, let's just discover, not just that we, have a, have, we are going to be devoted for fellowship, but let's understand first our need for fellowship. Look right here in Acts 2, 42. It says, and they devoted. That word for devoted uh, means to stick close to. It means to hold fast, to persist in something, to be steadfast, and to persevere. What do you hear in that? I hear hard work. I hear intentional effort. I hear the implicit truth in devoted means that if if it means to stick close to, something is there trying to remove me from it. If, if, if If it means to hold fast to something, it means something is there to try and pry my grip away from that which I'm trying to hold fast to. If it means to persist in something, something there to help me to just kind of just forget about it. Are you seeing the implicit reality behind the word devotion? That it's, it's not natural. It's going to take effort. And I just got hung up by the word devoted this week. I'll just be really candid with you. So I'm going to spend way too much time thinking about why we need to be devoted. And it goes back to the creation account. It goes all the way back to Genesis I don't really think that we have time to turn there, but if you just recall in your mind, we did go through Genesis as a church. If you weren't here during that time, which statistics tell me, maybe you weren't. But if you weren't here during that time, just, just, just follow with me. In Genesis 1, 26 through 28, the scriptures say, let us make man in our image. And so he created them, male and female, he created them in our image. It's an our, let us. There's a plurality to the image of God. There's a plurality to the nature of God. It's what we would call the Trinity. That though God exists as one, he eternally exists in three eternal persons. Father, Son, and Spirit. And he says that we are made in the image of a communal God. 
you have deeply embedded into the fabric of your soul the desire and the need for community, for the fellowship. It's in you. God created you that way because you were made in the image of a communal God. Are you, are you tracking so far? This is, this is Trinitarianism 101, which is the mystery wrapped inside of enigma that looks like a puzzle, and it's all just we don't know what it means, but we believe it. And here's what I'd say to that. If you can, if you can explain all the things about God, then it's probably man-made. Like God, there's a mysterious part of who God is, and I'm just trying to put some handles around why it is that we want to be with people. We don't want to be isolated. Your soul felt this during COVID. You knew this is not good over the long haul. About six weeks in, you had a desire to be with people on some level or another. The deep introverts, it took six months, not six weeks. That's okay. But you still felt it. You still felt it at some point or another that we have this this fabric within our souls that says, man, I need to be with people. Matter of fact, the Bible goes on to say that God saw all that he created, not just male and female, but he all he created. He said, and all of this is very good in Genesis 1.31. And in that very good place called the Garden of Eden, he had Adam there. And he named all the animals, right? And he got to the end of the namings, and he's like, well, there's no suitable help for me. And God said in that moment, it is not good for man to be alone. I want you to think about how profound that is. In the perfect environment, which is the Garden of Eden. In a perfect relationship, not marred by sin, with God and man, God is now saying, this is not good. That's profound if we think about it. And so God does something amazing. He makes good on that longing that was inside of Adam. He puts him to sleep. He creates Eve Right? Adam wakes up, sings his first love song, which is a weird love song if you ever read it. Flesh of my flesh, bone of my bone. I'm like, I don't know what that's doing for her, but I got nothing. <laughs> but he's singing that love song. He's like, finally, someone that looks like me. Right? He, he makes good on that promise of what was not good. He now celebrates with Eve. And so Adam and Eve, happy together in the garden. And the very next verse says, well, first, I can't get to the next verse. The Bible describes that relationship as naked and unashamed. Naked and unashamed. And I think that we like get weirded out by that, but you got to think about like the first husband and wife. They're celebrating some things. But I just also want you to think about like what would it look like for us to live life and relationship that was vulnerable and without the fear of being punished for our sin. That's naked and unashamed. Vulnerable. That's where God created us. That's in the perfect environment with those first three. You've got Adam, Eve, and God, that they were naked and unashamed. And the very next verse in Genesis 3, verse 1 says, And the serpent was more crafty than the other animals. And it introduces the biggest problem the world has ever faced. And that is that beautiful community where they were naked and unashamed. They were vulnerable and not fearful. In that place, the enemy comes in, he snakes his way in, literally. He begins to cast doubt on God, the Adam and Eve sin. And as a result, when God comes to visit them, if you keep reading in Genesis 3, Adam and Eve hid from each other. They hid from God. 
and they blamed one another for the predicament they found themselves in, including they blamed God. And guess what? We've been doing the same thing ever since. This isn't the relational reality that I want, God, and I have a feeling it's your fault. You put these people here. Isn't that what the deconstruction movement is all about? I believe in your Jesus, but the people that follow Jesus, not so much. The people that you put there, eh. And yet, it's in all of us. This is why our marriages sometimes get strained. This is why our relationships with our kids are not what we'd hoped they would be. Not because of a lack of effort or because someone has got character flaws. It's because of sin. Because the enemy duped us long ago to find our hope in someone else besides our Father and our Creator. And here we are, reaping the consequences of that millennia later. So we want to know why there needs to be devotion perseverance, clinging, and steadfastness is because the world and everyone in it is, is, has all of a sudden been marred by sin and is pushing us away from that type of relationship. Pushing us away and trying to relinquish our grip for something that God is calling good. And so no wonder the first church comes into this whole idea and says, we're devoted to one another. We're devoted, yes, to the apostles' teaching. We'll get to that in two weeks. But we're devoted to the fellowship. Devoted to one another's good and growth. See, we naturally avoid naked and unashamed relationships here and now because that's exactly what we've been trained to do by our forefather and mother, Adam and Eve. But this is why devotion is necessary. And so friends, Christian rhythms like being devoted to the fellowship is not going to happen by accident. You're going to have to pursue it. You're going to have to cut some things out of your life in order to make these things happen. Matter of fact, when I'm studying this week, I'm like, man, Lord, this feels like a lot. Like, I don't know if I want to do this, candidly. There's some other things maybe I'd like to do. But I just keep hearing the scriptures. But if I want to live like the New Testament calls me to live and find the life that is truly life and all those other good things got to fall away so that I can pursue the best thing. That is why our need for fellowship is so desperate in our hearts and yet it's so difficult to attain. So difficult to attain. But we have a model. That's the good news is that we have a model for what fellowship will look like. If you looked at the beginning of Acts chapter 2, which is where we read, you would notice in verses 8 through 11, 15 different cultures coming together on the first day. 15. I don't know how many cultures are in this room, but if you think about it, I mean, the gift of tongues was necessary to bring everyone together underneath the umbrella, no longer of your culture of origin, but now as a citizen of heaven. And that's an amazing, miraculous work in Acts chapter 2. When you look at that, right, you've got all these 15 or so different cultures coming together to form the first church right there. And overnight, y'all, you know there's growing pains in this church. When we've grown from, what, 37 to where we are now, there's been growing pains over nine years. That church went from about 100 people in the upper room to 3,000 in a day. Talk about exponential growth. Like Matt Chandler talks about how the growth in the village church long ago when he first took over was super painful. 
because they had no money, and overnight they grew to all these young adults and young marrieds. Like that, there was a lot of pain for them during that time. And then he just had to mow the yard and just re- recite to himself over and over again, Lord, you, you hold the whole world in your hands. You hold the whole world in your hands. The same is for us. I can't even imagine what it was like for them. But look at this. They went from all these different cultures, all these different political alliances, right? They're coming from different countries, the Medes and the Persians and the Arabs and all these different places, all these different worldviews. And if you skip forward just two chapters at the end of Acts chapter 4, verse 32, I think it's going to come up on the screen. Look at this. It keeps growing. Now, the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. So some of the people were of one heart and soul. Just the core leadership was just of one heart and soul. Just the elders, the deacons, or the apostles. Just the inner group. Just no, no. The full number of believers, right now we think that's 3,000. Where we're going to find out, it goes up to 5,000. Full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. But they had everything in common. Do you see the vision? Do you see the model of what it looked like, the result of what it looked like to live, being committed to the fellowship? They didn't look like each other, talk like each other, they didn't even speak the same language. They didn't vote like each other or have the same jobs or the same hobbies. I mean, how in the world did 15 different cultures, thousands of messy new believers, you ever been around new believers? You were once one and you were messy and you were inconvenient. And you took up more time and effort than someone else that was spending lunch with you. That's the truth. Messy, all these messy new believers come together and they form this new, beautiful community. How did it happen? They were devoted to the fellowship. That Greek word is koinonia. We know that word because we sent out a church called Koinonia back in April. Josue and Koinonia Church was here last week. We sent them back out to go and reach their area of the city. But it is Koinonia and it is common ownership. The language there is this 50-50 business language of common ownership of something, uh, right? For, for us, we have to realize what that something is. We have to have 50-50 ownership in one another's good and in one another's growth. Next week, we're going to talk about the growth part. This is like the intro. But we are committed then to one another's good and one another's growth. And I would ask, how are you going to do that in this next season? I've got four movements that we need to make in order to become people that are committed to the fellowship. Maybe all these movements aren't yours, but maybe one of them is. I highly doubt that you were able to sit through these next four movements and go, none of them apply to me, I'm good. Because I'll tell you right now, I live in the first one. Just this week was talking with with, uh, Pastor Chris, right, about neighborhood groups and this, that, and the other. And there was some disagreement about uh, who was going to be in this, that neighborhood group. And I just found myself wanting to consume in a neighborhood group. I work hard. I deserve it. I should just be able to go and rest. And that's true, by the way. We all need that, but not only that. So the first movement, really, is going from consumer to contributor. 
That's the first movement we've got to make if we're going to follow this model. We've got to go from consumer to contributor. If you're here for you, that this church, and you're asking the question, what can this church do for me? At some point, you're going to have to go from consumer to contributor, which doesn't ask that same question. It doesn't ask, what can this church do for me? It asks, what can I do for this church? What can, I, what can this church do for me? Well, what are the kids doing? Is there a student ministry? I mean, what are they expecting of me? Is this, that, and the other? How about that band? Is the band okay? How about the preacher? And you move from all that, and you move into devoted to the fellowship when you're actually not consuming anymore, and you're contributing to the well-being, the good, and the growth of individuals and in the body because you know your well-being is tied to their well-being. If they're failing or falling or wandering, that's going to affect you, just like it would in a marriage. You know that if your spouse was falling away or wandering away, it would affect you. You can't just look at them and be like, well, I mean, that's their sin. I don't know. No, there's, a, there's a commitment and a devotion there to contribute to one another's good and growth. It's okay, friends, to start in the consumer area. It's not okay to start, to, 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 to remain there. We all start in the consumer area. We all start in this journey of trying to figure out, like, is it a good fit? That's not bad. But at some point, you got a journey over into the, okay, it is a good fit. Now it's time to get to work. Let's contribute to this place. And you see this word, koinonia, used and translated in English for contribution throughout the New Testament. Not just fellowship, not just partnership. I want to read with you. Uh, for you a couple of those passages. First one is in Romans 15, 26. For Macedonia and Achaia, other churches in other areas, Paul is writing from Rome, uh, or to the, to the church in Rome. For, for Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution, that is koinonia, for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. Do you see the nuance here? That it's not just the fellowship, it's not just the partnership, it's contribution, same word, same exact word in the Greek is being translated in different ways. They are there to contribute, not for their own good, but for a church that they'll never go to, never visit in Jerusalem. There's a famine, and they're in trouble, and there's a gathering, and we need to go and help. We need to send money to help. It will, you're going to have to sacrifice some things so that they have what they need. You could keep reading in another uh, letter that Paul wrote, 2 Corinthians 9. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ. By the way, side note, have you ever thought that submission was not beautiful and good and right? All of us are called to submit to God and others might give God glory as a result. Okay, back in. And the generosity of your contribution for them your koinonia for them. It's the same word. There was then in the new church, and this is the harder part, not necessarily of giving when then there is need. The harder part that I have seen, particularly in our context, isn't the giving. It's the realizing and admitting that you have need. You know what we can't do? I've, I've told this so many times. I can't tell you how many times I've told somebody, when you have need, please let us know. You're denying us the ability to honor God through obedience by bearing your burden. If you don't share your burden with me, I can't glorify God in my obedience of sharing that burden. Would you share your burden with us? That helps me honor God. If you keep your burden to yourself, I can't honor God. Now you're just an obedience blocker. And I, you no one wants to be that, right? So if you would share your needs one to another, we can bear those burdens and obey and 
honor and love God and be generous and kind-hearted as we do so. Consumers to contributors. The second movement we need to make is from preference to purpose. I don't know about you, this is where I kind of live some days. Like, I just only want to do life with people I prefer. Like, if you're a Longhorn fan, I don't want to do life with you today. Just, I mean, it was a double negative yesterday. Double, double negative Saturday. Aggies lost, Longhorns won. <laughs> Terrible. Terrible. Right? I don't, that, that's a preference thing. I'm just kidding, by the way. Where is Roger? Oh, he's Roger. He's, there he is. He's like, yeah, man, I'm, I'm a Longhorn fan. Deal with it. Finally, huh? Oh, burn. Um, preference to purpose. Get back to my notes. Jesus rebuked his disciples when he said, hey, what good is it that you would love those who love you? The tax collectors do that. And he goes on to say, hey, don't just love those who love you, that you like, that are like you. Vote the way you do. Root for the same sorry football team on a Saturday. That's not enough. The tax collectors do that. It's not indicative of Christian community. What is indicative of Christian community is enemy love. Love for those you don't prefer. They have wounded you. They have hurt you. Enemy love. That's the kind of community that we've got to move towards and away from those, the community that's built on preference. So just for all of us that are picking neighborhood groups, right, I love that, that Dustin said, come and visit. Like there's no pressure to just go to one. But just like I would say, like, church shopping is a bit heinous, let's also not treat neighborhood groups like they're just something we're shopping for. At some point, you're going to realize they don't do everything for you. And guess what? You don't do everything for them either. But can you commit to what is worth committing to? Not your favorite NASCAR or your football team or what happens at work or whether or not you can work out, like, your health with one another, but your spiritual health. From preference to purpose. It is each other's good and growth. The third movement we got to make is from Pharisee to faithful. What is a Pharisee? A Pharisee is one that, that, that relates to others on a score they're keeping in their head. Y'all know the Pharisees. You might be one. I used to be one. Still am one a lot of days. How dare I say used to be? No. Still am one. That if they're not doing the things that I expect them to do, this happens in my family most of all not doing the things that I expect them to do. Mm. Score, negative. My score, 100. <laughs> Pharisees keep score, but what would it look like for us to stay faithful? Stay faithful amidst shortcomings. You see, faithful people that love others well aren't, don't get caught up in the lack of score in the other person's life. They see it and they love them anyways, just like Jesus loved you, just like Jesus continues to love you. That we're not all put together, but instead we've got multiple flaws, known and unknown, and Jesus stays committed and faithful. The last movement we've got to make is from having safe relationships. And I mean that in a bad way. It is good to be safe. I mean that in like playing it safe, to sanctifying. <laughs> playing it safe, surface, sentimental, going into sanctifying, meaning like we got to become holy because we're, we're naked and unashamed with one another because we're vulnerable and not fearful of being, being punished for our sin or our shortcomings or our mistakes. I had lunch again with a pastor this week, and he told me a story of how he counseled uh, a family, and uh, they were telling them some things about their marriage, and he was giving them counsel, and he thought everything went really well, and they stayed to be a part of their church for a decade. They were faithful. 
They were contributors. They did all sorts of things. But after a decade, they came to him and they said, hey, we're no longer going to be a part of your church. And he's like, well, like, you've been, been here a decade. What, what happened? And they said, well, you just know too much about us. Ten years had gone between those conversations. Ten years. That person wanted to be anonymous. I can tell you right now, that is a drug in the American church that we are all too um, eager to tap into. It's not good for us. You might as well just stay home and procure your favorite preacher online on TikTok, YouTube, or whatever else you can consume to remain anonymous. Hey, I get it. Being known is hard. But you're made for it. You are made for it. There's two alternative, there's two, two choices you can make in all of this. And then we're going to get to our last point. First choice is you remain anonymous and you play it safe. And you have surface relationships and you go and you do the things. You do the Christian things. You know, there was a big study about this some years ago through Willow Creek before they imploded up in Chicago when they were still the thing, right? And they did a study called the Reveal Study, and they said, look, if you just, they, they, their thought was, their philosophy, their strategy was, if you can get a bunch of Christians just doing Christian things over a long period of time, then they'll become more like Jesus. You know what? It was an anonymous place. It was a safe place in some ways, but they didn't actually become more like Jesus. They didn't change their life at all. They just got busier. You could, you could do that. The American church is, is just calling out for more people to do that. But I can tell you, people at the Grove have bought into a greater vision of being known. And knowing your secrets, knowing the things that make you, you, your story, which is full of all sorts of difficulties and hurt and perhaps abuse and we know those stories inside of our smaller environments, gospel-centered environments of neighborhood groups and growth groups. And in those environments, though terrifying to share, you know what I've heard over and over and over again? A lack of judgment, a lack of condemnation, and a freedom that comes by bearing one another's burdens, by knowing one another's stories, as we invite each other to follow Jesus, knowing all these things about ourselves. That picture of community is far greater than the anonymous one where we plop, pray, and pay. That's not changing anybody's life. That's not transformative. God's called us to something better. It takes no devotion, a little devotion to do that. It takes perseverance and steadfastness to enter into this kind of naked and unashamed relationship, not just with a spouse, but with a small community of believers. You can't do that with everybody, but you can do that with somebody. And somebody can do that with you. All right, so how do we live all this out? Despite these movements, where is our true hope? Well, I just read a little bit of our true hope, but I want to go back to it in Acts chapter 2, which we actually read together our hope and fellowship is this vision. Acts 2, 44 through 47. And all who believed were together. Y'all getting that? All who believed were together. They had all things in common. That doesn't mean that they agreed on everything. It means that they kept the main thing the main thing, and that's what mattered to them. And they were selling their possessions. Look at, what this, look at what this birthed in the early church. They sold their possessions. Remember that contribution part? Their belongings, and they distributed the proceeds to all as any had need. 
and day by day attending the temple and breaking the bread together in their homes. How often? Day by day. They were devoted to this. They received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. What a beautiful picture. And I want to leave you with two or three more pictures as well. The first one is the centerpiece of a table. Like, you ever been to a fancy dinner? Um, They don't just have, like, nothing at the center of their table. At my house, we have nothing at the center of our table. But like, but like fancy dinners, like, like galas, like the attack poverty gala that we all went to, the, the, the centerpiece was beautiful. Like, and you talk about it, right? Ooh, look at the centerpiece. And some people get so carried away with centerpieces on a table at a fancy dinner that you actually can't talk to the person across from you. And so you have in doing this number, like, hey, how you doing up there? And then it just turns awkward. But it becomes the centerpiece, and you talk about it. And at the centerpiece, ultimately, for us, is the gospel. That's what makes this work. I don't know what the centerpiece is in your conversations. I know what the centerpiece of my conversations have been this morning. A&M football, Astros baseball, Moses' baseball games this afternoon. And you know what? It means nothing. It's fun. It's part of life. It's where I can go and be a missionary in these places. But ultimately, it's not worthy of centerpiece talk. It's not worthy to be the center of our table, so to speak, because it's not good enough to create glad, generous, and grateful hearts. That's what we just read in verse 46. Attending temple, breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with gladness, generous hearts. How do you receive something with a generous heart? Because you have reception and then you're giving it right away. Praising God, that's gratitude, and having favor with the people, that's grace. That's not enough. That centerpiece of sports and everything else isn't enough to, to formulate all of that. The only thing that's worthy to be our centerpiece is the gospel. So when we come around, just like Rebecca said, when we come around in our neighborhood groups, Like, it's good to be centered around things that we like. It's good to include those things, but it's not good enough. It's not going to create all of that, the kind of people that shake up the world. When we arrange our tables around the story that we once, friends, were separated from a God, a holy God, by our own sin, but that God who is holy separated from us, did everything necessary to come and get us out of the darkness, to come and get us and stand in our way when we were running from him, and brought us back to a table where we not only could have the warmth, clothing of righteousness that is found in Christ, but also have the provisions of a table where we put our feet underneath the same table as Jesus. Jesus is there. And our Father set this table for us where we would, we would just ultimately feast on grace and mercy and the forgiveness of sins. It's at that table that we don't belong to have a place setting. And God set our place and made sure that we not only sat there but wanted to sit there over time. And then he just continues to give us more and more food. More and more grace and mercy and be reminded of the forgiveness of sins again and again. That's the only thing that will create glad and generous hearts. Full of gratitude and grace with all of those that are looking on. It's the only thing. 
So the centerpiece is at the point of your fellowship. It can't be, if it's going to be distinctly Christian, anything other than that beautiful story of God coming for sinners, bringing us near to the forgiveness of sins, which is purchased by Jesus. That's it. So what centerpiece typically describes your community? Eek. What centerpiece typically describes what you're devoted to? Your neighborhood group, your growth group, you're just coming together, chat up, catch up, complain about our spouse and our kids? Work? Lord, help us, there's so much more. Truly, Lord, help us. Holy Spirit, help us, there's so much more. We can start there, but let us not end there. Right? The last, or maybe the second to last picture I want to send you with is, I apparently got cut up on tables this week, so I do apologize. Centerpiece being one. Second image is coffee tables. We recently went shopping for a new couch for the second time this year. Delightful. <laughs> Loved doing it the first time, much less the second. So we went, and we purchased a smaller couch other than the monstrosity that we first purchased. By the way, very deceiving gallery furniture. Looks a lot smaller than it is. Really huge. Had to get rid of it. It's way too big. Got a smaller one. Looks the same. Not the same. Looks smaller. It's smaller. And one of the things that I strategically did during that time was I spent extra money, my wife and I both spent extra money on an ottoman that you can put your feet up on. You know those? You got one of those in your room? And what it meant was that the coffee table that we've had for almost 20 years had to be removed and put into my office. It's still in my office. Why did I strategically do this? Because I'm crafty. Because I knew and I've observed what's happened in our family over the last couple of years, especially since COVID. We used to have every meal at the breakfast table. And over time, as our kids got older, we got less and less committed to discipling them at the dinner table. And Pat Sajak and Vanna White won our hearts over every night with the Wheel of Fortune. <laughs> I got to tell you, I got my Wheel of Fortune skills from my mom. She taught me that she discipled me in the ways of Wheel of Fortune. And you know what we were doing? We were doing the same thing discipling our kids in the ways of Wheel of Fortune. And so if I remove the coffee table, we can't eat there anymore. There's already been cries in our family, bring the coffee table back, Papa. No. Going right over back over to the table, especially on the days we don't feel like it. When we want to veg out and check out, those are the days that we need community the most. Those are the days that we need a regular check-in the most. Hey, high, low, let's go. What you got? Oh, my high was this, my low was this. Cool. Keep going around. We usually get distracted when we get to Moses. It's all over the place. But it's a whole lot better than neglecting that time, giving ourselves over to lesser things. And so I would just say, what do you need to remove out of your life, maybe out of your living room, that's distracting you? It's not the TV, I can tell you that. That's too much of a sacred cow. But I can get somewhere else. I like TV. I can, I can take that coffee table out and we can put ourselves in a more realistic uh, point of success and disciple in that way. And so I leave you with that. But I also leave you with this. This is it, for real, the last one. No more pages on the outline. Centerpiece, a coffee table. And then I leave you here. Are you devoted to this kind of fellowship? Or do you treat it like it's dessert. 
what do you mean? Every restaurant you've ever been to, the server comes around at some point, if you have a server, comes around at one point and they ask you this question. Well, did we save room for dessert? And your answer is, like you get shocked by it. Oh, I don't think I can do that, but thank you so much. I don't know why we have to have this theatrical response. (laughs) Oh, I tell you. But we do. And I think sometimes we treat the fellowship like dessert. Did you save room for it? Did you save room for it at the end? Because the answer, more than likely, is that it costs too much and I don't have any room. But there's something deep inside of you that's longing for these types of relationships. God put it there. Satan tried to steal it. And Jesus is coming to renew it. It has come to renew it. And the church is the instrument of that renewal by his grace. By the power that is found in the Son. That's the great promise. That's the great hope. That's the great vision that the New Testament puts before us. I pray that we would ultimately not save room for it, but eat it first. Let's pray. Jesus, help us do these things. Help us not see one another as some sort of optional take on the Christian life. Help us be humble enough to admit our need. Help us be brave enough to meet needs. For those of us that find, have found this quite rewarding and yet so painful because of betrayal, pray, Lord, that you would help us remember that we are called to forgive others as we have been called, we, we have been forgiven in Christ. So may we remember how deep our sin has been against you so that we can then love others as you have loved us. Forgive others as you have forgiven us. Take more chances with others as you continue to take your chances with us. Laying yourself bare for the sake of those who would ultimately stomp you to death. That's naked. That's unashamed. That's beautiful, relentless love that the world is thirsty for, hungry to see. I pray that you give us the courage to live it out with one another. We'd invite other people that that we know they need it. It's built into them. We'd invite others into that. I pray that it would be a day-by-day intentional effort to be devoted to this kind of way of living. For all of us who have lost heart, for all of us who have grown weary in community, no, I've done that for too long, it's too painful. I pray, Lord, that you would renew our hearts, renew our hope in you, not in people. Renew our hope in you as the ultimate lover of our souls so that we may then love others as you have loved us. May we then devote ourselves to this sort of fellowship for one another's good and growth by the power of your spirit and for your namesake, amen.